This morning we are going to finish up our sermon series in the Ten Commandments. So we've been in the Ten Commandments all fall, um, and we've been looking at God's instruction to His people. And this morning we're going to close this sermon series by actually fast-forwarding. We've been in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to fast-forward to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Um, They're printed for you in your bulletin if you need them. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of these least of the commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that in it you show us who you are and what you're about, and so you show us who we are in you. I pray in these moments that you would move by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to open the eyes of our hearts, to show us the Lord Jesus Christ, to show us your love, that we may love you all the more. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I said, we've been looking at one of the most important uh, sections, the important portions of all of Scripture as we've been looking at the Ten Commandments. And to close out this sermon series, I want to talk about something incredibly important when we think about what Scripture is and how we approach it. And that's the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, I named this series that we've been in Living Free because I think there's a misconception about how Christians are supposed to relate to the Old Testament. I've said it before, honestly, and you've probably said it or heard it so many times well, that's just the Old Testament. That does not apply to me. Jesus came. That's just the Old Testament. So I'll just focus on the New Testament. That the Old Testament's about restrictions and rules. And the New Testament is about freedom and grace. But that couldn't be further from the truth. The truth is that the Old Testament and the New Testament are like two volumes of one story. And the Old Testament lays all the groundwork. It's filled with promises and longings and even frustrations that point forward like signs to how God will definitely and fully redeem. And the New Testament is the written testimony of the fulfillment of those promises in Christ. And the reality that the shadows of the Old Testament pointed to all along. Apart from the Old Testament, the New Testament makes no sense at all. Which means for Christians that the Old Testament is not something to disregard or to pick and choose from. It's holy scripture that's to be treasured. It's more precious than gold, as we saw in Psalm 19. It's sweeter than honey. So as we're wrapping up this Ten Commandments series, I want to do a little bit of reflecting on the Ten Commandments in the context of the whole of Scripture and how Jesus related to the Old Testament. And what that means for how we relate to the Old Testament. So I'm going to break this up into a couple of different sections. The first one is this, the law of God. 
the law of God. All Scripture is important, but there are certain times in Scripture and certain things and stories that serve as foundations for the rest of Scripture. Times when God has worked and it has implications for everything and everyone else. And one of those is what we have looked at in the past in the book of Exodus, when God freed the Israelites, that first generation of Israelites from slavery in Egypt and brought, them, brought him out of there, gave them his instructions and kind of founded them, in a sense, as his nation, and then sent them into the promised land a generation later. And within the story of the Exodus as a whole, the Ten Commandments is given a central place. In a real sense, it's like the Constitution of God's kingdom. It's the only time in the Old Testament when God speaks directly to His people. And there's a permanence to it, even in how it's given. It's written in stone. The rest of the laws of Moses given to him were written on parchment. But the Ten Commandments was written on stone, and it was kept in the Ark of the Covenant, this this basic symbol of God's throne that was at the very center of Israel's worship. It was the only writing that was put there. And now that doesn't mean that the other laws given through Moses weren't important in their time and place, but it does point to the idea that the Ten Commandments are unique, which I think is important for us to understand if we're going to rightly understand the law of God and how we relate to it. So here's what I mean. I I think it will help us uh, get our mind around it if we think about the law in the Old Testament, having three types of laws and three uses for the law. I'm going to talk about each of those. Well, first, we'll talk about the three types of laws. And so this is what we find in the Old Testament when we're looking at God's instruction. We find ceremonial laws. We find civil laws, so like laws related to the state. And we find the moral law of God that lasts forever. So let's talk about each of those. We find ceremonial laws. Those are laws about worship. They regulate sacrifices and all kinds of things related to the temple and the tabernacle. And all of these ceremonial laws, they had a specific function of training God's people to know that he desired a relationship with them, but that sin stood in the way and needed to be dealt with. And these sacrifices for sin and the ceremonial law, they all pointed forward to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. In the words of the book of Hebrews, all those ceremonial laws were shadows that pointed to a greater reality. If you go outside now and you see a massive shadow, you know that shadow is not the actual substance of a thing. The shadow is cast off by a greater reality. And if you want to understand it fully, you look from the shadow to the greater reality. We have that privilege as those who live on the other side of Jesus to see the way all of those shadows pointed to the greater reality, to see how all of the sacrifices, all of the complicated worship in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple are point to Him and are fulfilled in Him. They were like the ABCs that helped God's people learn how to read His Word, Jesus. And now that Jesus has completed His atonement for us, all of those ceremonial laws are no longer needed. So we don't need to like rally to try to get a temple built again or a tabernacle built again. In fact, that would be disobedience to God if we tried to go back and follow the laws we find in like Leviticus 
That would be disobedience to God because that would be hanging on to the shadows instead of looking to the greater truth, the reality that they pointed to all along because of what Jesus has accomplished once and for all, we need no more sacrifices. We need no more priests to stand between us and God. He was the one to whom they all pointed all along. So those were the ceremonial laws. So when we read the Old Testament, we, if we're reading in Leviticus, which if, you, if you've ever done the read through the Bible in the year, that is where you stop. You're about, what, March? And you get to Leviticus and it's just like, you're like, I don't understand what it's talking about. The sinew and the cutting of the, it's complicated, yes. But it all points forward. And when we read that, we don't need to go, okay, on church, at church this Sunday, I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring a lamb. I'm going to bring it and Tim will cut the lamb. No, that's not what we need to do. What we do is we read that and we see how it points forward to Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for us. So what about civil laws? We find laws in the Old Testament that were regulations given to Israel as a nation. These were laws about how to arrange their uh, justice system. It was about what kinds of crimes fit, what kind of punishments. And these laws were very culturally bound. If you look through, you'll see... You know, <laughs> there's laws about how to interact with your neighbor's oxen. Now, we live in, you know, a pretty rural place in eastern North Carolina, but none of my neighbors have oxen, you know. So I can't, like, directly implement that in my life. But those laws were given at that culturally specific time for God's people when they were one nation. So many of the laws we find in the Old Testament don't make any sense to us. If you've ever read through, you'll see stuff about how to shave your beard exactly right. Like you can't, you can't shave certain parts of it. Uh, there's, there's laws about mixing different types of uh, uh, crops in a field. Those kinds of things. Those were all culturally bound. The reason they were given, usually, was because there was something about another nation that was repugnant. To God, And it was reflected in this thing. And so God was steering his people away from those things. And we've lost a lot of them. So a lot of those laws aren't going to make any sense to us because we don't know exactly what they were countering. Um, but in Jesus, now, now, and another thing, the civil laws, as we've talked about in this series, some of them, all of them really, were based in some way or another on the foundation of the Ten Commandments. It was... God's people applying the Ten Commandments at the space and time that they were in. So I talked about your neighbor's oxen. There's law that says if you are just in your field and you see your neighbor's oxen who's wandered away and you know that your neighbors don't know that their oxen is out, that you have an obligation to go get that oxen and get it back to them. You're, you're protecting their means of livelihood. But obviously that was culturally bound to a time when all your neighbors had oxen. But it was a true application of the principles and the things that we learned in the Ten Commandments. That my, my, my neighbor's life is valuable to me. It matters to me. And so this is how, in that specific time and place, God's people lived that out. Now in Jesus, these specific laws lost a lot of their function. 
Because one of the reasons those laws existed was to narrowly define what Israel was in the mix of all the kingdoms and all the nations of the ancient world to make them, in a sense, peculiar, to make them strange, to keep them uh, a peculiar people. But it all pointed forward. It was almost preserving that nation, in a sense, for the time of Jesus. The fullness of time had come in Him. And so when He comes, and when He accomplishes His work, He flings the door of the kingdom of God far wider open than one nation at one place on the earth. Because in Jesus, the doors of the kingdom were flung open to people of all kinds of different cultures and all kinds of different nations. And so today, the kingdom of God, it looks different you go, to, you go to worship today in Eastern Europe. It's going to look a whole lot different and sound a whole lot different than our worship here in Dunn, North Carolina. It's going to be a different language. There's going to be a different structure to the thing. In the Old Testament, that would be, okay, we've got to have this monolithic, very similar, exactly the same worship at all the different places. But we, we get this beautiful mosaic in the kingdom of God in Christ. All kinds of different cultures and all kinds of different expressions. And so if you want to live faithfully in response to the gospel of Jesus, you don't have to like cut your hair a certain way or wear a certain kind of clothes or listen to a certain kind of music. No, the door has been swung wide open in Jesus. But the Ten Commandments, that's the civil law. We've got ceremonial and civil. But the Ten Commandments... They're designed to transcend culture and transcend time. They're permanent. They tell us something basic about what it means to be human beings who are living in light of the gospel across all time. And theologians through the centuries have called this God's moral law. It stands apart from the ceremonial law or the civil law because it's designed to last it applies to all of God's people across all ages and all cultures. As I said, they serve as like a constitution to God's multinational and multicultural kingdom. So there's a uniqueness to the Ten Commandments that runs through Scripture, an ongoing importance for both it and the rest of the Old Testament. And that's what I mean with our relationship with the Old Testament. When you read, in a sense... The rest of the Old Testament after the giving of the Ten Commandments is like an unpacking of the Ten Commandments. So when you flip forward a thousand years after the time the Ten Commandments were given, and you're reading one of the prophets of the Old Testament, they will point back to what God had said in the Ten Commandments. They're almost like a mixture of a lawyer and an artist, like a poet and a lawyer in one. And they're telling God's people, we've gone off path. And this is where? Right here. So that's a broad overview of God's law and the rest of the Old Testament building off of it. And like I said, it all pointed forth to Jesus. So let's talk about that a little bit more and seeing in our second section, Jesus' relationship with the Old Testament. Jesus was accused in his lifetime, it was a big problem, of being a quote-unquote law-breaker. That's why he addressed it specifically in Matthew 5, which we read as our sermon text this morning. Jesus makes clear, I have not come to abolish the law, 
I'm not here disregarding what God has said, but I have come to fulfill the law. Which means when Jesus looked at the scriptures of the Old Testament, because for him that was his Bible. The New Testament wasn't written yet. The Bible of Jesus was the Old Testament. When he looked at it, he didn't see it as something he needed to get rid of. Something I need to set aside and start something new. He saw it as something good that he was sent to fulfill. And he worked in his life and his death and his resurrection to make it where sin has been defeated so that we can be reconciled to God, the lawgiver, and so reconciled to the law that he's given. We talked about how he did this with the ceremonial law, that the shadow to the reality, that the sacrifices pointed forward to Jesus. And we talked a little bit about how that worked in the civil law, that he was the end point and the goal of those laws. And, 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 and in him, the, the, the kingdom of God is, is multinational, multicultural. But how does that work with the moral law? How did Jesus fulfill that transcendent moral law? Well, he did the law. He did what the law instructed God's people to do. As one of us, fully human, Jesus obeyed the Ten Commandments, not just to the letter, but the spirit of what they were guiding God's people into. He was truly righteous without sin. Jesus was faithful. And so Jesus did not place other gods before God. That was one of the temptations that faced him when Satan tempted him at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 3. Bow down before me. And Satan says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. He's saying, I'll give you a shortcut to your goal. I'll make it happen right now. And Jesus says, no. No. Because you are a liar. No, he didn't put under other gods above God. He didn't create false images of who God is, but he imaged who God was. He didn't misuse God's name. He was able to rest. He honored his father and mother. He did not kill. He did not commit adultery or steal. He never bore false witness, and he did not covet what belonged to others. Instead, he humbled himself, even though he was the eternal son, worthy of all glory and honor. He was the one through whom and for whom all things were created. He humbled himself in taking on his flesh, even to the point of death on a cross and facing that, walking into his crucifixion, which he cried out to be delivered from. He entrusted himself to the Father, believing that in this act of injustice, he was really facing the punishment that sin deserves, so that all of those whom he loves, us, wouldn't have to believing that he would not be handed over to death in the grave, and he wasn't. That's why it's important for us to realize that the resurrection wasn't just a magic trick to impress people. It was the vindication of who Jesus was and what he had done. It was the Father's amen to what Jesus had just done in his life and in his death. It was the confirmation that this was the Holy One, this was the Messiah, that his life of faithfulness was not in vain. His life of faithfulness was not ridiculous. His relationship with the law was one where he fulfilled it in every single bit. And this is the glory of all glories. This is why this is important for us. When we come to him by faith, we receive that righteousness, that perfect life. 
we receive the credit for that as a gift. I often say we are not saved by works, we are saved by grace. But the truth is that we are saved by works. The works of Jesus. Every single one of us who are in right standing with God are saved by works. The works of Jesus on our behalf. So when we come to Him by faith, we, see, we receive the credit of those who had perfectly done God's law in every bit. Because Jesus lived probably 33 years. We don't have exact dates. I don't think I've gone longer than five minutes without sinning in my entire life. But 33 years of facing every temptation and turning away from it. 33 years of never taking the shortcut. 33 years of never disdaining the image of God in front of him when people were, were there. 33 years of obeying the voice of the Father. We get the credit for every single bit of that. It's a glorious truth for the gospel. He perfectly fulfilled the law as one of us. And he did all the work and we get all the benefits. He didn't disregard the law. He didn't disregard the Old Testament. But he was the fulfillment of the promises and the longings and the frustrations. He was the thing that tied it all together. So I talked earlier about the three types of laws. And I said I was going to talk about three uses of the law. And so I want to, I want to mention this because I find this very helpful. When we talk about, we're starting to look at Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament and the law and what that means for us in our relationship with the Old Testament. So there's three types of laws, there's three uses of God's law. The first one is what we've been talking about, the law as a mirror, in a sense, that points to us and our need for a Savior. So we see God's law and we realize, oh, <laughs> this is a place where I have fallen short, and fallen short drastically. I need grace from God. That's the first use of the law. And so when we stare into God's perfect law, we hear his instruction and we are appointed again and again not to shame or guilt. That's not the point of the first uh, use of the law. So it's not just a mirror. We are pointed to the sufficiency of Jesus for us. It's important for us to know that I'm not talking about the law as a condemning thing. Because there's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. But when we look into God's perfect law and we see the places where we have uh, fallen short or messed up, we see the things that we've done and the things we've left undone, it points us over and over again for the sufficiency of Jesus. That's the first use of the law. Um, now it's important, I, I, this is an important point for here. The law has no condemning power for us, and it has no justifying power for us. So when we hear God's instruction, we don't need to think, I need to do that to make Him love me. And we don't need to think, I didn't do that, and so He must despise me. The reality of Jesus means that God's instruction, God's law, has no condemning power, and it has no justifying power for us. It can lead us in wisdom, which we'll get to in a moment for the third use of the law, but it cannot condemn, and it cannot justify. Only God can do that. So that's the first use of the law. Uh, use of the law. We look at God's perfect instruction. We are guided to see the depth of our need, the depth of our sin, and most importantly, the magnitude 
of his grace. The second use of the law is a general use to restrict evil. It's closely related to the first one, but the second use of the law is to restrain people from pursuing selfishness, sin, and violence. We talked about it a lot in this series, that, that laws like, you shall not kill, the sixth commandment. It doesn't just mean, like, don't go murder somebody. It has a greater trajectory than that. It means that life should be valuable to us. But if somebody's heart has not been captured by the beauty and the glory of God, and they hear, you shall not kill, and they decide to not kill, that's a good thing. <laughs> that's the second use of the law. It restrains us. It, it, it can't change our heart. But it does guide us. It does broadly guide. Don't kill. Don't steal. That's a bad thing. So that's the second use of the law and the way it operates on a lot of us before we hear and understand the gospel. It's a basic guide for, for kind of what matters. It restrains evil. The second use of the law, as I said, is when somebody hears, you shall not kill and decides not to kill. That's not the fullness of the law. It's missing the heart of God in the law, but it's still a good thing if somebody's considering wickedness and decides not to do it. Now that leads me to what I'm going to spend the rest of our sermon on, the third use of the law. Because this is when we look to the law, not, law, not for condemnation or justification, but when we look to God's instruction for wisdom. The third use of the law is looking at it as a guide to how we as God's freed people live free. A guide to a life that pleases God. A life that is lived in the shining light of being His delighted in child. This is what Jesus has accomplished for us. We read it in Romans chapter 8 uh, in our assurance of pardon. It talks about us now being those in whom the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled by the Spirit of God. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, the empowering presence of God, and that sweeps us up into the life of God. And now that we know the law cannot condemn us, we are actually freed to interact with God's instruction the way we were designed to. That's what that Romans 8 passage means. The righteous requirement of the law is met in us because we're not looking to the law and our performance of it for vindication. We're looking at it as the instruction given to us by our loving Father on how to walk in the freedom that He's brought to us. That's the righteous requirement of the law. Not looking to it for vindication, but looking at it for guidance. And it's in Christ that we have a righteousness that He talked about that exceeds the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, I always heard that, so, you know... If you ever hear anything about the time of Jesus and his interaction with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these were the people that took God's law seriously. Like they were meticulous about it. He speaks about it. They would go to their spice cabinet and parcel out 10% of their spices to make sure they were tithing on everything. These were the people that spent their days thinking like, how exactly can I do this and do it to the uttermost? And, and knowing that, when I'd hear, we need to have a, I need to have a righteousness that exceeds them, that's a terrifying thing. Because I'm not that meticulous. I'm not that religious. But what he means is we don't need the righteousness that performs. We need the righteousness that can only come as a gift from God, not earned. 
So here's just how this works for us. When we look to God's instruction, when we look to the Old Testament, we can do that without any terror because, again, it has no power to justify. We can stop looking at God and our relationship with Him like a game where we need to score the most points because that's not what it is at all. We look to God's instruction as a guide in perfect and pure wisdom. In the book of James, he speaks about the, it being the royal law that brings perfect freedom. And that's largely what we've talked about the last few months as we've been in the Ten Commandments, looked at them one at a time. How to hear the voice of God in the Ten Commandments and not miss His heart. To hear them as good news. To look at them through the lens of Jesus. And so we read the Old Testament, all of it through the lens of Jesus and what God has accomplished in Him. In some ways, when we read the Old Testament and we interact with it, it's like going back and watching the first Avengers movies. I haven't watched anything since Endgame. So. Um, but it's like going back and... What, what was the first one? Captain America? Or no, Iron Man was first, right? I don't know. I'm not that big of a nerd. Actually, I am. Um... <laughs> But it's like going back and seeing that in light of Endgame. If you, have, if you saw that culmination of the whole story and then went back and rewatched the movies, you'd see all kinds of things. You're like, oh, they were setting the tone. They were, oh, they were setting this up here for, to happen down here. That's amazing. Look at all these tie-ins. Look at how it works. When we go back and read the Old Testament, we get the benefit of reading it and knowing where it's going. We get the benefit of seeing all the ways that it points to Jesus. Seeing how God was at work in, at that time to prepare the way. But it's more than that. It's more than just that. That would just be an intellectual curiosity. That would be us like picking up and going, oh, that's really cool. It's like us, when we interact with it, getting sucked into the movie screen and finding ourselves part of the story. Because what we're actually seeing is not just a cool movie. We're seeing our family story. These are our ancestors in the faith. And how God worked in their lives. And what they looked forward to, we look back to. And in that way, we're joined to them. Because the truth is their faith and our faith is the same. It's just a matter of the amount of light we could see at the time. For us, the Old Testament is fully Scripture. And that's my plea this morning, to not just interact with Scripture as the Old Testament is just, uh, it's just the first part. I don't need to read it. I got the back end. I got it. It's fully Scripture, as much as anything in the New Testament. And if we ignore it, we cut ourselves off from over half of God-inspired Scripture. And our understanding of who God is is severely diminished, severely cut off. So... The call to us this morning is to joyfully embrace all of Scripture. To look at God's law for wisdom because we are righteous by faith in Jesus. To hear the voice of God speaking to us and telling us what we've learned in this sermon series. That He is our God and we are His people. He is our God, our source of life, who gives us value by grace, who's brought us into this intimate relationship with Him, who has given us His name and adopted us into His family so we can rest. We are His people, and we know that our lives matter, our histories matter, the words we say in our hearts, our internal life matter to God, and our worth is not defined in what we have or what we've done, but our worth is given to Him, given to us by Him. 
that said, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your instruction to us. That you don't leave us uh, blindly flailing about in this world wondering what it means to live. But you give us instruction. So I pray this morning that you will uh, uh, move upon our hearts to joyfully embrace all of Scripture. Because all of it is good. All of it is given by you to us. That we might know who you are and what you're about and we might know who we are in you. Thank you for your word. pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.